Well, this past week I had a conversation with a friend that, um, in, in hindsight, I think may be a salutary warning for believers, for professing believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, I was talking, with, uh, talking to a woman at one of my kids' swim meets this past week, and I was just you know, asking her basic questions about life, as I often do. How, how long have you lived here uh, in the D.C. area? You know, who, who are your kids here at this event? Uh, tell me about your, your husband. Uh, do, do you have a religious background? Uh, these are typical questions for me. Uh, this woman, she, she kindly told me about herself and, and shared with me that she comes from a, a Catholic family and her husband is a Muslim. Uh, in, and in her answer, she made clear that she wasn't really a, a practicing Catholic. Um, so I asked her, and, and, and your husband, is, is he a practicing Muslim? And she answered, no, not really. Uh, he's, he's a lot like most Christians, you know, only Christians on Sunday. You know, he doesn't really pray five times a day or, or go to mosque. He, you know, he gives alms and fasts, but he, he isn't really a practicing Muslim. Like most Christians... A Christian on Sundays. Those words rang in my ears. Like most Christians. A Christian on Sundays. Can I ask you a sincere and serious question? Is that you? Are you like most Christians? Are you a Christian... On Sundays? I think that would be a worthwhile question for each of us to reflect on and consider as we open God's Word together this morning. And, and adds to that this question what, What's the difference between a Christian on Sundays and a Christian every day? You know, maybe you're, you're here this morning, you've gathered with us, and you're not a, a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, maybe, maybe you feel like, yeah, that's, that's what I run into, I feel like, when people call themselves a Christian. It's just, you know, once a week, maybe a couple times a year. Well, friend, this morning, I hope that as you hear and listen, I hope that you'll hear the heart of what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just one day a week, not just a couple of times a year, but, but every day, Lord willing, what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that as we study Deuteronomy 28 together this morning, that God would give us a, a spirit of humility, that He'd give us the, the gifts of repentance and faith. And if, if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 168. 168. That's the, the page that the passage we're studying is on. And just so you know, I'm going to be referring to verses throughout this chapter pretty regularly. So when I mention the chapter, it's the larger number there in the print of the Bibles. And when I mention the verse, I'm talking about the, the smaller number that you'll find there. Uh, while you're, you're turning there, let's just go ahead and get ourselves oriented to the book of Deuteronomy itself. Uh, we may think of the book of Deuteronomy as a series of sermons given by Moses on the plains of Moab. The people of Israel are, are getting ready to enter into the promised land. And, and Moses is preaching to them about what life in the land should be like. And in the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses reminded Israel of her history, of, of God's electing grace and patience. And he reminded them of God's law. And in view of God's love, Moses 
called Israel to express their love in return. So chapters 12 to 26, Moses mapped out what that love looked like in, in practical terms. It meant that they should keep God's law. Keeping God's law is, is one way, if not the main way, that God's children express their love for Him. Last week, you may recall, that we studied Deuteronomy chapter 27. And in that chapter, Moses, he outlined a covenant renewal ceremony that the people of Israel were to conduct once they entered into uh, the land. They were to make these promises to each other and to God in this ceremony. But in chapter 28, we move away from considering that covenant renewal ceremony itself to actually keeping the covenant. And, and we get this distinction in our lives, right? So um, we understand there's a significant difference between participating in a ceremony and living out what that ceremony communicates, right? So uh, there's a significant difference between making wedding vows and living out those wedding vows. Uh, think about this difference too in, as Christians in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ as believers. There's a difference between confessing our faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us in our baptism. That's what we're doing. We're confessing our faith in Jesus and His work for us. There's a difference between making that confession in our baptism and living out that baptismal confession day in and day out by dying to sin and living to righteousness. We're called to repent and believe every day. Similarly, in the Lord's Supper, another ceremony, we remember and proclaim that we're members of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And as we eat and drink in that ceremony, we visibly and verbally confess that Jesus gave His life and blood for us. Our confession in that ceremony is important. And so is our daily conduct outside of that ceremony. We are called to bear witness to the watching world, not just on Sunday, but every day that we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you can see why Moses would immediately follow up his description of this ceremony, this covenant renewal ceremony, with an exhortation to live that covenant out. That's what Deuteronomy 28 is all about. In fact, if I had to summarize the message of Deuteronomy 28 into a single sentence, this would be it. Serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart by keeping His commands. Is your life each day characterized by joyful and glad-hearted service of God? Given the, the length of this chapter, suppose you may have noticed that it's 68 verses long, Given the length of this chapter, uh, we're going to study it in something kind of an overview fashion. So that means I'm not going to read and we're not going to look at every single word here this morning. We will look at the main emphases of the text. So if you're taking notes this morning, here are the, the three points that are going to form the outline of the rest of this sermon. The happiness of blessing. The horror of the curses. And the heart of it all. These are the three points that we're going to be thinking through together this morning. And I pray that we will come to see how Israel and we are called to serve the Lord our God with joyfulness and gladness of heart by keeping His commands. And precisely why we should live and love the Lord with all our heart. Well, let's begin with our first point. The happiness of blessing. And as I do, please follow along as I read uh, the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28. Let's read Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 uh, to 14. And if 
If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you be, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall, be, shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to Himself as He has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. And they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you His good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its seasons and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Well, these verses have a very definite structure. And the structure is important. Uh, verses 1 and 2 function as something as the introduction to the subject. Verses 3 to 6 outline the blessings in formal declarations. And in verses 7 to 14, they elaborate those blessings. They explain the benefits that attend to and accompany the blessings. For now, let's take just a closer look at the blessings proper. So I want us to look at verses 3 to 6. And, and let's remember that Israel will receive these blessings if, there's a big if here, if she faithfully obeys the Lord and keeps His commandments. That's in verse 1. In, in, in verses 3 to 6, you'll notice there we find six distinct blessings. Blessings which we have been told in verse 2 will come upon Israel and overtake them. The idea, of course, is that Israel will be abundantly blessed. God's blessing will not be meager or mere, but mighty and magnificent. Israel will be blessed everywhere they reside, city and country. Verse 3, Israel will be blessed everywhere they go, when they come in and when they go out. Israel will be blessed in every aspect of their lives, families, farms, flocks, and food. Verses 4 and 5, there's, there's not a space or a place that Israel will not know the blessing of God. Their whole lives will be lived under God's blessing. That's, that's the idea that we gather from these verses. Moses has tried to express this in his words and even how he has put his words together. If you feel like Moses' words are kind of oscillating back and forth, city and country, 
in and out. If you feel like Moses' ideas are kind of going back and forth, then, then you're getting from one end of the spectrum to the other. If you feel that way, then you're, you're getting the right idea. Moses is trying to persuade the people of Israel that a wholehearted obedience to God will be met with holistic blessing. And as I mentioned a moment ago, verses 7 to 14 are something of, of an elaboration of verses 3 to 6. So Moses has just said, God is going to bless you in every aspect of your life. And now he turns and says, now let me just give you a few practical examples of what that's going to look like. That's what verses 7 to 14 capture. Just like Moses structured the blessings proper, so he structures his elaboration on the blessings. And in these verses, we find repetition and emphasis You'll, you'll notice recurring blessings in relation to other nations. Enemies will be defeated, verse 7. Uh, Israel will be exalted over others, verse 10. They will lend to many nations, but not borrow, verse 12. Other nations, whether they be enemies or friends, will flee fear and find economic help from Israel. Other benefits stemming from God's blessings find repetition in the idea of fruitfulness. So Israel's labors will be fruitful. That's in verses 8, 11, and 12. God will bless his people in battle, verse 7, in barns, verse 8, and in birth, verse 11. So here's something that's key. Israel will be so blessed that they may bless others. Others should come to them seeking the blessing that they, as a nation, know. And what is the greatest blessing they have? They know Yahweh. And all of this really is God reaffirming his promise to Abraham back in Genesis, where God promised to make Abraham and his offspring a blessing to many nations. Now, we, we briefly surveyed Moses' elaboration on the blessings in verses 7 to 14, and I, I recognize that we've really only scratched the surface, but, but I do wonder if your eyes saw or heard three key words in, in those verses when we read them a few minutes ago. Here are the three key words. The Lord will. Uh, look at the beginning of verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies. Verse 8. The Lord will command the blessings on your barns. Verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. Verse 11. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. Verse 12. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain. Verse 13, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. What was Israel to, to learn from this? Who is the source of all blessing? Who were they to praise and thank? They were essentially to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. They all come from Him. See, Moses here, he, he outlines the happiness of these blessings, the, the generosity and grace of God with the hope that Israel would give herself to wholehearted obedience to God. That's why Moses proclaimed these blessings. He's, he's encouraging, he's exhorting Israel to trust and obey Yahweh. But we're left to ask a few questions, aren't we? What, do these, what role do these blessings play in God's unfolding story in redemptive history? How do these blessings relate to us sitting here today? as New Covenant believers in Jesus. What, what does this mean for our Monday, not just for our Sunday? Well, take a look at the first few words of verse 4. Blessed shall you be in the fruit of your womb. Let's remember that the Bible opened up with, with God making the world and everything that is in it. He made a very good world, a, a blessed world, didn't He? He made the first man and the first woman, and He 
blessed them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God planted them in a garden that exuded fruitfulness and, and life and blessing. And these verses should remind us of that. They also remind us that Adam and Eve lost that perfect paradise when they sinned and rebelled against God. Adam and Eve lost that world when they failed to obey the voice of God and instead obeyed the voice of the serpent. And shortly after their sin, God promised that one day He would send His Son to be the Savior of the world. That Son would recover and restore the blessings that Adam and Eve had lost. When the people of Israel hear the words of verse 4, and the blessings of these verses as a whole, they should have remembered the blessed garden and longed for the full restoration of God's blessed world. The womb, which sadly is a place that is so often despised in our day, the womb would be the very place where God would entomb the blessings of salvation, only to bring forth His greatest blessing in the fullness of time. Those who listened to Moses and lived by faith, when they heard those words of verse 4, when they heard the words, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, they heard the hope of salvation. Let me explain what I mean. Keep one finger here in Deuteronomy 28 and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 42. Turn to the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, verse 42. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 856. Luke chapter 1, verse 42. The words that we're about to read are the words of Elizabeth. She is carrying John the Baptist, the great prophet of God, in her womb. And it would be John's calling to announce the coming, uh, the arrival of God's promised son. It, it, what we find in Luke chapter 1 is that John, in Elizabeth's womb, he jumps in Elizabeth's womb as he, as he comes into the same room as Jesus, who was in the Virgin Mary's womb uh, at the time. So we're going to read Elizabeth's words of blessing to Mary. Uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You see what Elizabeth announced here? Elizabeth announced that the fulfillment of the covenant blessing of Deuteronomy 28 verse 4 had come. She uses the exact same language. Jesus brings the covenant blessings of God. How do we relate to the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 as New Covenant believers? We see in them the shadow of what was to come in full substance in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have the hopes not just of a, a beautiful piece of real estate in the Middle East, but the hopes of the new creation. that The blessedness of the new heavens and the new earth or the heavenly city of Jerusalem as it's sometimes called in the Scriptures. They're, they're prefigured in these blessings of Deuteronomy 28. Ultimately, when the Lord Jesus returns to consummate His kingdom, the people of God will know the blessings of God without the stain of sin in this world. They'll know the blessings of God without the fear that they can be lost. We will certainly be happy then. And we have much to be happy about now. What does Deuteronomy 28 mean for your Monday? It means that you should hear and heed the voice of God. Moses was telling Israel about these blessings from Deuteronomy 28 to encourage them to obey. That application is certainly true for us. We should obey our God. We should hear and heed His voice, obey His commands, and live as though this world is not our home. It's just the wilderness that we're passing through. We, like the ancient people of God, must be longing for a better country, a heavenly one. 
And if they longed for it, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, how much more ought we to long for it? The blessings of Deuteronomy 28, as they prefigured in types and shadows the glories of Jesus and life with Him in the new heavens and the new earth ought to shape our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays and every other day in relationship to how we spend our time, prioritize our relationships, express diligence in our workplaces and seek the salvation of our family and friends. If the blessings that we have, we have coming to us in the new heavens and the new earth are better and brighter than the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, and they are, they are better and brighter, then why not invite others to come to know Jesus and the happiness of blessing in Him? Don't we want others to know the saving blessing of God? We do. Go ahead and, and turn back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. That's again on page 168 of the Bibles provided. Well, having considered the, the happiness of blessing, let's turn now and consider the, the horror of the curses. The, the promised blessings of God are conditioned upon faithfulness to the covenant. If they obey, they will be blessed. If the people of Israel should choose to disobey God's commands, then they will suffer God's curse. As, you, as you'll notice in your Bibles, the section on God's curses is much, much longer than the section on God's blessings. For now, I just want us to read verses 15 to 19 of Deuteronomy 28. And, and as we read, I want you to notice something. Notice how the blessings of God are, are reversed. They're the inverse of... Uh, sorry, notice how the, the curses are, are inverse of the blessings. Notice how they're the, the mirror and negative image of them. Verse 15 there. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Just as the, the previous section concerning the blessings exhibited a very definite structure, so does this section concerning curses. Just as verses 1 and 2 function as kind of the introduction to the blessing, so does verse 15. Just as verses 3 to 6 outline the, the blessings in formal declarations, so do verses 16 to 19. And just as verses 7 to 14 elaborate and explain the benefits that attend to and accompany the blessings, so verses 20 to 68 elaborate and explain in excruciating detail the horror and the heaviness that will attend to and accompany the curses. And I, I'm sure that you're, you're catching on to the fact that we're seeing, again, the reverse image of the blessings in these curses. And, and at least one thing that is horrifying about these curses is the very fact that they, they will, in the words of verse 15 you see there, come upon you and overtake you. Uh, in, in other words, there's no withstanding or stopping these horrifying curses. They'll be abundant. And as we thought about the blessings, we, we rejoiced in the idea that there would not be a space or a place that Israel would not know the blessings of God. But, but as we come to think about these curses, we must be sobered by the truth that should Israel disobey and disregard God's commands, then there will not be a space or a place where they will not be met 
by God's curse. The whole of their lives will be haunted by the horrors of God's curse. Remember the structure. First the curse is proper, and then the examples and explanations. Moses has just said, God is going to curse you in every aspect of your life. Verses 16 to 19. And then he turns and says, and let me give you a few practical examples of what that's going to look like. Verses 20 to 68. 48 verses of examples and details. And the truly horrifying reality of this is that three-word phrase that we saw before. The Lord will once again makes itself known over and over again. What's so horrifying about that? God can do all His holy will. You know, in this life, we are so often frustrated in our pursuit of accomplishing what we want to do. We want to go to the DMV and get there and get out in 15 minutes having accomplished what we went there to do. We want to get to work without any traffic. We want to snap our fingers and have a clean house and the laundry folded and put away. Uh, we want to get through the workday without any kind of friction or frustration. But we are often frustrated in this life in our pursuit of accomplishing what we want to do. How many of us ever finish our to-do list before we go to sleep? And even if we do, as we're laying down, I'm sure something comes to our minds, I forgot to do that today. We're often frustrated by what we want to accomplish in this life, what we want to do. But God is never frustrated. In the words of one children's song, is there anyone who can ever do anything that he wants to do? Yes, God can. God can do all his holy will. And, and what is it that the Lord will do if Israel disregards and disobeys his commands? Well, let's just take a look at a few of these verses. Look at verse 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do. Verse 21, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 22, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever. Verse 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Verse 27, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. Verse 28, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Verse 35, the Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you to your you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. Verse 59, the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting and sickness grievous and lasting. Verse 61, every sickness also, every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Verse 63, and as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 64. 
And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Verse 65. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Verse 68. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt. A journey that I promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. Now just as we saw repetition but when the blessings were elaborated, so we find repetition here. I'm sure you caught kind of multiple references to boils and sores, multiple references to Egypt, multiple references to nations that Israel did not know. But, but let's just pause and take in the horror of what we've just read together. What would life be like for Liz, Israel living under God's curse? What, what, what were those practical examples of life under God's curse? Confusion, frustration, pestilence, wasting disease, drought, famine, defeat, boils, tumors, scabs, itch, madness, blindness, exile, afflictions, sickness, ruin, scattering, trembling hearts, failing eyes, languishing souls, and a return to Egypt. That's what we just read. This is what God purposed to do should Israel disregard and disobey God's commands. And if you were to keep reading through the history of Israel, if you were to keep reading through the Old Testament, you would see that they did disregard and they did disobey God's commands. And that's what the prophets were running around shouting and screaming and saying fantastical things about in the Old Testament. This will, if you understand Deuteronomy 28, this is going to help your Bible reading later in the Old Testament. The prophets of Israel are running around screaming about these things in Deuteronomy 28. They, 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 they sound to us crazy, but they're just telling Israel what God said He would do. They sounded confused and mad, but they were just telling Israel, this is what God said He would do if you disobey. This is what God will do if you don't repent. If you don't turn away from your sin, you'll be cursed. Remember Deuteronomy 28 is what the prophets proclaimed. They essentially cried, this is what God will do. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is what God did. He shattered and scattered His people. Deuteronomy 28 was written sometime around 1400 B.C. By the time 722 B.C. rolls around, the northern kingdom of Israel has descended into disobedience, idolatry, and apostasy. And the Assyrians come knocking on their door and they carry the northern kingdom of Israel out of the land and off to exile. Just as God kicked Adam and Eve out of that blessed garden when they sinned, so God removed Israel from the land. And if you were tempted to think that the worst of these curses didn't come to pass, you'd be wrong. In verse 52, Moses begins to describe what life would be like when Israel was besieged. In verses 54 and 55, he says that the most gentlemanly of men, the most distinguished, the most refined men, will not give food to his family. He'll even turn to cannibalism. And then we read this in Deuteronomy 28, verses 56 and 57. The most tender 
and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she's so delicate and tender will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out between her feet and her children whom she bears because lacking everything she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. Now turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on the bottom of page 312. Here's the backstory to the verses that we're about to read. Syria is besieging the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria. Food has run out. The king is out and about. He's, he's walking on the wall. And a woman cries out to him and asks for help during this siege. Pick up reading in verse 28. And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Is this not horrifying? This is the destruction that depravity brings under the curse of God. Turn, turn back to Deuteronomy 28. Tur turning back here, we can see that the Lord not only will, but the Lord did. He did bring these curses upon Israel for their disobedience. And just as these curses fell upon the northern kingdom of Israel, so too they fell on the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, in 722 BC, I mentioned that the northern kingdom of Israel was carried off to exile by the Assyrians. And then in 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was carried off to exile by the Babylonians. Nations whom their fathers had not known. Languages that they did not understand. And especially with the close of the chapter, you see there in verse 68, the return to Egypt we see that the whole thrust of this section is essentially that Israel will be returned back to life before their exodus in Egypt. Right? It's, it's just a reversal of, every, of all of their history. Only, it will be worse. Not only will they go back to Egypt, but they'll go through all the plagues that Egypt went through. That's why we, we saw all these boils and itches and things mentioned. But there's more. Not only will they go back to Egypt and go through all the plagues that Egypt suffered, when they get there, they won't even be wanted. Those people who were exalted in God's blessings will be those who are a byword and a taunt among the nations in God's curses. No longer will it be, look how loved Israel is. Look, look how great their God is. Now it will be, yeah, don't be like Israel. You know, their God hates them. No, they will be a, a curse and accursed. What role do these curses play in the unfolding history of the Bible? How do these curses relate to us 
as Christians today? What does this mean for our Mondays? Well, just as the blessings prefigured the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth, so these curses prefigure the divine and final judgment on sinful humanity. The, the Old Testament prophets, as I said, will pick up the language of these curses and they'll also attach to them the, the final day of the Lord. In verses 65 to 67, Moses talks about how the people of Israel will find no respite. Right? They'll, they'll find no place of rest. Night and day, they're going to be tormented by dread. They're going to say, I just, I just wish it were morning. And then in the morning, they're going to say, I just, I just wish it were evening. They're, they're not going to have any rest. Well, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, the Apostle John tells us that those who rebel against God will have no rest day or night. These verses show us in types and shadows the horror of God's eschatological, His final curse on sinful humanity. And if these temporal curses are horrifying, then the eternal curse of God is infinitely more horrifying. What does this mean for new covenant believers in Jesus? Well, here we must remember what we read last week from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. I pray that you remember that passage. There we, we read about how Jesus Christ, he, he bore the curse of the law for the sins of His people. When we read Paul's words in Galatians 3, when we read Paul's words in Galatians 3, we concluded that, that we need to say in our hearts, Amen, I agree, Jesus bore the curse for me. Jesus bore God's curse for all of those who repent and believe. And, and what that means is that God the Father brought forward in time the final judgment due to the sins of His people and He poured out His divine and cursed wrath upon Jesus Christ. These curses in Deuteronomy 28 were temporal and typological, typological of the final curse that sin really deserves. And if you're a believer in Jesus, then God's final judgment against your sin has been brought forward, poured out upon Jesus and satisfied the wrath of God. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what you need to come to understand today. Either you will bear the cursed wrath of God against your sin, against your rebellion and your refusal to obey God, or you can hide yourself in Jesus, believing that He took God's final curse against your sin. That's what He did on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, He took the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. Jesus died bearing God's wrath. But, three days after His death, He got up from the dead. God vindicated Him and proved to us all that Jesus' sacrifice for sin was acceptable in God's sight. He lived that righteous life that we have not lived. And so He was the perfect Savior for sinners like us. So, friend, flee the wrath and curse that is to come by turning from your sin and placing your faith in Jesus. And if this is true, if it is true that Jesus bore the final curse for His people, then shouldn't that change our Monday and every other day? It should. You know, so many of us don't live 
from day to day thinking that God is God and that God's curse is going to come down upon disobedience. A friend so helpfully reminded me of this this past week. We, we don't live as if God is God and, and, and if He's actually displeased with sin. If we did, would we not want to rescue as many people as we can from His coming wrath? Wouldn't we want to warn them of His curse and welcome them to faith in Jesus Christ? We would. We should. A Christian on Sundays doesn't have to share the gospel because he's with other Christians on Sundays. Most Christians don't evangelize. Is that us? Does that need to change? If the curses aren't that bad, if they aren't that eternal, if they don't cause that much trouble, if God isn't that displeased by disobedience, then nothing needs to change and this word does not need to have any impact on our life. But, if Deuteronomy 28 is true, and it is, and the good news of Jesus Christ really is good news, and it is, then I think we'll find that we can't help but tell someone about our curse-bearing Savior. Because here's the heart of the matter. Here is what Deuteronomy 28 is really all about. It's all about the heart. Will Israel obey God? What's in her heart? Do we really love Jesus with all of our heart? Well, let's turn and consider our third and final point, the heart of it all. In reading this chapter, we need to understand that Moses is preaching to the people of Israel. And let me tell you a little secret about preachers. Um, preachers aim at the heart. Preachers preach for the glory of God and the good of His people. We seek to expose sinners to God's grace. We seek to exhort God's people to greater devotion to Jesus Christ through the equipping, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Preachers aim at the heart. And that is where Moses has been focused all along. Let me show you this in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God. Take that phrase, faithfully obey. See, that, that phrase carries with it the, the idea of obedience, of personal obedience, of perfect obedience, of perpetual obedience. Why wouldn't Israel faithfully obey? Why won't we faithfully obey? Well, where do our loyalties lie? Who are we really faithful to? Skip down to verse 14. Deuteronomy 28, 14. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Go after other gods. Why would Israel go after other gods? Why would we go after other gods? Why would we go after idols in our world and in our hearts? You only go after other gods if you don't really love the one true God in the first place. Look at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments, whose voice would Israel listen to? Whose voice will we listen to? Are we listening to? Will we listen to the voice of the serpent who seeks 
to woo us in order to wound us? Or will we listen to the voice of Jesus? He is the good shepherd. And unlike the serpent who speaks harm, Jesus speaks to heal. Jesus said that his sheep know his voice. And he calls them by name. And he leads them out. Are you obeying the voice of the Lord Jesus in your life? Skip down to verse 45. Verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that He commanded you. Keep His commandments. Think about that for a moment. Why wouldn't Israel keep God's commandments? The only reason that they wouldn't keep God's commandments is because they, they didn't really believe in their hearts that God's commands were wise, and loving, and good for their good. Do you believe they are? Do you believe that God's commands, His instructions in His Word are wise and loving and good? That they come from a heart of a Father who loves you? Do you seek to keep God's commandments? Oh, but Mike, I'm not under the law anymore. Well, we're certainly not under the dominion and curse of the law as believers. True. We certainly don't keep the sacrifices because Jesus has fulfilled them. As Hebrews teaches us, true. Christ fulfilled them. But, but if God's law reflects God's holy character, and it does, then shouldn't we seek to reflect God's character in our lives? If God's law was the way of life for Jesus, then shouldn't we who call ourselves followers of Jesus make it our way too? Is it not a guard against sin and a guide to holiness? We should love God's law. He loved us enough to give it to us and to give us His Son to keep it for us. Skip down to verse 52. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. You see that language of the heart. Israel trusted in their defenses. They trusted in their high and fortified walls. But they should have trusted in their God. What do we trust in? I mean, do, do we trust in our good works? Do we trust in religious freedom? In political figures, in judges and justices? Do we trust in military might? Do we trust in our intellect or our economic resources? What do we trust in? Well, ask yourself this question. Who or what am I most afraid of losing? What... What am I ready to defend at a moment's notice? Find out what you fear, and you will not be too far from finding what you trust. Our anxieties are a good mirror in which to look. If we lost everything most dear to us, could we say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, brothers and sisters, let us remember that there is only one rock. And Redeemer. There is only one who is to be trusted above all else. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is our sure defense. Look at verse 58. Verse 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Why would Israel not be careful to do all the words of this law? 
because they did not fear God's glorious and awesome name. They didn't hold the perspective in their hearts that they should have held on God. And by fear here, Moses does not mean terror. No, he means loving devotion, reverence. Do we view God as He is? Do we view Him as glorious and awesome? Brothers and sisters, our God has condescended to us in Jesus Christ. He has shared in our flesh and blood. He has suffered among us so He could sympathize with us. He has destroyed the devil's power and defeated death's pain. He has come to help those who could not help themselves. What God is like our God? Who has His authority and His acclaim? Who is as awesome and almighty? There is no God like our God. Yahweh is His name. Perhaps the clearest, first of all, is Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. Here is where we see most clearly that Moses is concerned about what's in Israel's heart. Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. We serve what we love. We serve those we love. Moses, he goes on to explain that since Israel did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart, they will serve their enemies. The history of Israel sadly proved that not all, in fact most, were unfaithful in heart to God. Deuteronomy 28 is a warning. It's a chapter of warning. And we need to hear its warning. Moses is exhorting the people of Israel not to be rebellious in heart. If they are rebellious in heart, they will be rebellious in life. And if they are rebellious in life, they will suffer God's curses. You know, the, the New Testament contains warnings to those who profess to be Christians. Many of them are in the book of Hebrews, which our sisters here in this congregation will be studying uh, this coming fall, Lord willing. Many of the New Testament warnings are found in Hebrews. And the warnings in the Bible, you need to understand this about the warnings in the Bible and the New Testament. They are meant to keep Christians clinging to Jesus Christ. That's how the warnings are meant to function. Christians hear the warnings of the New Testament and they say, Jesus is my only hope. I have to hold on to Him. You need to keep this in mind when you read the warnings of the Bible. And you need to keep this in mind as I give you this warning. Do not presume upon God's grace. If you are persistently disobedient, be warned. Your disobedience may be evidence that you are not savingly united to Jesus Christ. And if so, your baptism may have been a sham of a ceremony. If you are not savingly united to Christ, your celebration of the Lord's Supper is a sham of a ceremony. The covenant renewal ceremony in Deuteronomy 27 was a sham of a ceremony for those who did not profess faith in their hearts or possess faith in their hearts. And the same is true for all of those who are not savingly united to Jesus Christ by faith. Children, youth, young adults, let me encourage you to hear the warnings of Scripture and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There will come a day when your parents 
are no longer around to ensure that you're even a Sunday Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ from your heart. Believe on Christ, Christian. But why? Just to escape God's curse? Why should we serve the Lord Jesus with joy and gladness of heart by keeping His commands? This is what I want us to explore as we conclude. Deuteronomy 28 is a deliberately heavy text. And I mean for us to feel that. It's appropriate for us to feel the weight of God's Word when it is weighty. Why should we believe on Christ from the heart? Just to escape the curses of God? Well, that's part of it. But it's not the heart of it. It's actually not wrong to want to escape God's curse. You should want to escape God's curse. Certainly part of it. As I said, it's not the heart of it. The only thing, or I should say really the only one, who can lift us out from under the weight of this text is the one who bore the weight of our curse on the cross. This word from Deuteronomy 28, this word should drive us to the word who has made flesh. We need to remember what we're about to sing. We need to remember this truth. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. We stand forgiven at the cross, brothers and sisters. Why do we believe? Why do we obey, not just on Sunday, but every day? Why do we live out our baptismal confession each and every day? Why do we live out what we proclaim in the Lord's Supper? Because Jesus, through His life, His death, and His resurrection... Turned, he turned our eternal curse into an eternal blessing. That's why we love him and obey him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Because he turned our curse into a blessing. Let's pray together.